Good evening, my name's Scott Lee and I'm alcoholic. <laughs> to be completely honest, I'm a terrified alcoholic. Uh, I could be talked out of this. I, <laughs> I, um, I'm supposed to thank Jimmy, but I'm not glad to be here. I'm, <laughs> but no, sincerely, thank you very much. It's, a, it's an honor, a privilege, and anytime I get a chance to do anything in this wonderful fellowship, what's difficult for me is I get me in the way, and you're probably not familiar with that, but uh, I, get, I get me in the way, and to stand here in front of some of my heroes and talk is kind of a big deal. So I would just like to say thank you. Uh, and I, I would like to, I would like very much to, uh, to quote, it's interesting, I, I love Billy's talk today. Uh, he and I had a mentor in common. And uh, one of the things I learned from that man, he said he learned to treat God like a gentleman. He didn't say God was a gentleman. He said he learned to treat God like a gentleman. And he said, gentlemen don't go where they're not invited. They don't stay where they're not made welcome. And so part of my morning when I first wake up is to invite God in, not to give me some help, but to run my life. And then I try to conduct myself during the day in a manner that I think will make him welcome. But what I'd like to do here in a, in a couple of moments, uh, an, another, another great one said one time that frequently there's a moment of silence before a meeting. And she said she invited God to the meeting, which I thought was pretty powerful. So I'm going to take a, a, in a minute when I kind of wind down, I'm going to ask each of you here, if you would, in a moment of silence to invite God to the meeting. God, as you understand God. Uh, I noticed we got a pretty good number of people here under a year. Uh, thank you for coming, and congratulations to those who made you come. I believe in strong sponsorship. And um, <laughs> so if you're new and you don't have a God, I'd like to invite you to borrow mine for the evening. Um, he's big enough for everybody, and he's uh, been keeping me sober continuously since the 28th of June of 1984. And uh, I'm a member, by the way, of the backroom group in Nashville, Tennessee. I have a sponsor, and I sponsor some guys, and I've got some corrections commitments. I try to be an active member. But uh, if you don't have a God or you're afraid there might be one, which is how I got here, um, borrow mine. I recommend him very highly. He has a, a great sense of humor. And boy, if you don't think so, look around the room. <laughs> I think we're pretty funny. And uh, the other thing I do in the moment of science is ask God to help me not judge the speaker. Now, you don't have to do that. Uh, but meetings got better everywhere when I started doing that. I don't know where all the idiots went, but meetings just started getting better. So if you would, humor me, and, uh, and, and let's take a moment and literally invite God to join us. I'll just meet you back here. Amen. Thank you. Um, I'm going to do a little bit of drunkalog, and uh, my focus tonight is supposed to be on steps eight and nine, and I'm old, and I drank a lot of booze and smoked a pretty good lot of dope, so if I don't get back to that, somebody call me on it in about 20 minutes, but because uh, I really mean to do that, and uh, I would like to also complain about Lee. Um, he's been derelict. You needed to be in my room last night when I was trying to sleep to record the talk I made then. It was uh, one of the best ever, and uh, anyway. Uh, those of you who have spoken know what I'm talking about. Uh, I didn't start drinking until I was 18 years old. I needed to drink way before then. I know the first day I needed to drink, that I, for sure, was the first morning I left for kindergarten. I could have used a double that morning, but it's not easy for a six-year-old to get a double, so I just did without. And uh, I, uh, I was 18, and I was going through fraternity rush, and fraternity boys start drinking beer. I start drinking beer. I would have done anything they were doing. Because I wanted to be one of the guys, and I never felt like I was. 
and here was a chance. And uh, they start drinking beer, I start drinking beer, I don't like the taste, I don't like the way the foam feels, I'm drinking beer, and I'm watching theirs. And as they get to the bottom of their first one, I get to the bottom of my first one, they order a second, I order a second. And by the time I got to the bottom of the second one, I got the magic that all alcoholics understand. And the earthlings don't understand it because it doesn't do that for them. And uh, I didn't fly in from Nashville, by the way, to talk to you. I came to talk with you. So play with me. And I was suddenly taller. Who, who got taller when they drank? <laughs> Jimmy, you too? Really? Really? Wow. That's powerful stuff, right? That wasn't 3-2 beer, was it? No. Okay. And better looking, right? Pimples fell right off. And uh, expert on many subjects. Oh, now I understand. Why didn't I see it before? It's so clear. Yeah, brilliant philosopher. Right? Uh-huh. Fantastic dancer. Oh, we have dancers. Yes. Yes. Gentlemen, I could talk to the girls. Ladies, you could stand to listen to it. Right? Yeah. It worked for everybody. And I would have paid a high price for any one of those. And uh, hadn't even got to the big one. The, the big one was for the first time in my life, it was just okay. For the first time in my life, something deep inside me went, oh, and it was just okay. I was 18 years old, the first time it was just okay. And I don't know how this happened to me. I have some theories, but it doesn't matter much. I don't know how it happened to me, but some, some time by the time I was five or six years old, I, I had realized the single greatest truth my life was to know until I got to you, and that was that I'm not good enough. I'm one of the defective ones. There are things wrong with me that can't be fixed. And, uh, and that was, the, that was the, the truth in the core of my being. It made all my decisions. It made all of my choices. And uh, I'm not only not good enough, but nothing I ever do will ever be good enough either. And I became an actor as a small boy. And my act is, I'm going to pretend to be the man that I think you want me to be. And you is defined as whichever people are in front of me right this second. Now, I'm a different guy to everybody. I heard Dr. Paul say one time that he wasn't very impressed by schizophrenics. That's just two personalities. If he could have got down to two, he'd still be out there. And uh, <laughs> I got hundreds of personalities. And, at what I like to think of the end of my drinking, I got a customer in, in East Tennessee. It's a very religious guy. He knows a very religious Scott. I got a customer in Knoxville. It's a party on Friday night kind of guy. He knows a party on Friday night kind of Scott. The boys in the pool room where I buy my dope and drink my beer, and I got the family members, business partners, neighbors. Everyone knows a different Scott. And the greatest fear in my life is people from different parts of my life be at the same place, same time. How am I going to act? Because, see, I'm acting all the time. I'm on yellow alert anytime I'm awake hiding that great truth because I know that if you see through my act and see me like I see me, you won't want me around. Much of together people like you would not have a defective model like me around. And uh, so I've been an actor all my life. And two beers later, I'm tall enough, smart enough, good looking enough, I can talk to the girls, expert on many subjects, fantastic dancer. And for the first time in my life, I transition from I'm terrified they're going to see through my act and not want me around to <laughs> These turkeys are pretty lucky a cool guy like me is here. <laughs> if you didn't recognize that, that's an entire psychic change. <laughs> and I suspect that that's why Dr. Silkworth said that's what I had to have to get over my alcoholism, because that's what it gave me, was a badly needed entire psychic change. And I, I chased it hard after that. I zipped through a four-year college and five years and two summer schools. <laughs> I know you're here. Come on. 
These are my people. And uh, joined the United States Air Force. Uh, I was to be in the cockpit for five years. It was a, a great privilege and honor. And, uh, and I dishonored it. You know what I did. But uh, you're all familiar with the Air Force's T-38. You may not know that you are, but you saw the movie Top Gun. Uh, Tom Cruise thought they were MiGs. Uh, it's that airplane. And I had the privilege of flying that thing. And uh, it's high performance. That's afterburners, faster than the speed of sound. And uh, it, this thing has a roll rate of 720 degrees a second. Yeah, twice around every second. Your, your eyeballs won't track that if you're sober. And uh, a, a loop is the 360 degree turn through the vertical plane pulling positive Gs. In this plane, you enter a loop at 10,000 feet at 500 knots, so you pull up at five Gs. That's five times the, the force of gravity. What that means is that a 200 pound man at five Gs weighs 1,000 pounds. That's precisely what, everything on you weighs times five. Oxygen mask is dragging down. Try to imagine that your upper eyelids weigh times five. You'll be aware of that. And uh, 10,000 feet, 500 knots, 5Gs, wings level inverted at 20, takes two miles vertically to pull her over on her back. We lose 10,000 feet down the backside, total elapsed time under 25 seconds. I told you all of that for two reasons. The first one, of course, is to impress you. <laughs> Anybody? Yeah, me too, I'm up on that. And, uh, and the second one is, I think it'll help you see my alcoholism and maybe yours. Because uh, I, we finished about 5.30 in the afternoon, I head over to the officer's club. And I used to go, go out to get drunk. That's my mission tonight, I'm going out to get drunk. And if that's not what you're going to do, prefer not to have you along. You're going to be a problem later. <laughs> Unless you're driving and buying. <laughs> then we could talk. Uh, but I also, do you ever get drunk by accident? Anybody ever drunk, accidentally drunk? Like on a night you're absolutely sure you're not going to? Okay. The Thunderbirds, I did not fly with them, but they flew this plane for seven years. And tomorrow morning, a friend of mine and I are going to do some of their show just for fun, two of us. I'm going to be four and a half, five feet away from his plane at 700 miles an hour going over the top, pulling seven Gs. Nobody with a brain would get drunk the night before going to do Try to imagine that some hideous force is going to strap you on a roller coaster tomorrow morning at 7.30, and it's going to run for an hour and a half. That's nothing. Guys like me go to sleep on roller coasters. That is dull compared to what I'm going to do. Let me ask you to fill in some blanks, because we have the same story, okay? So trust yourself, you know the answers, just fill in the blanks. But I do want to socialize the other pods of my squadron. I'm gonna drop at the club and have one beer no more than? Come on now, some of you didn't play. Now, the Al-Anons, this is what you heard on the phone, okay? And you believed it again, that's why you have to come to Al-Anon. The ones that ran for screaming from guys like me, they don't have to come to your thing, do they? No, they don't. All right, together now. I'm going to have one no more than? Two. Should be on by 6.30, no later than? Seven. A lot of pilots here, Jimmy. We'll talk flying later. I'll be in the lobby. And, uh, but what happens is by the time the second, whatever it is, jack and water tonight, you know, beer, whatever, by the time the second one hits bottom, I get the magic. And, and what I think happens is I changed my mind. Fred, I haven't seen you so long. Let's have a cold one. I'll watch one more quarter of the ball game. Okay, rack them up. We'll shoot a couple more games. I think I changed my mind. What really happened was I got this craving Dr. Silkworth talks about. And I don't know that. And I have another, another. And I don't get home by 6.30 or 7 with one or two of me. I leave the club at exactly 1 o'clock in the morning because they... Close. <laughs> I drive home drunk with a hand over one eye. Okay, all right. 
Um, I walk in, my first wife rips into me. Quite a bit of information there. And uh, I head into the bathroom for my after drinking chores. Yes, that's right, yes. Who, uh, who puked? Come on, at least one, who puked? How about out your nose? Who nose puked? Yeah, did you? Okay, come on nose pukers, put them up. These are my people. These are my people. I don't know how the rest of these people got here. And uh, who quit forever? Who did it in front of somebody? Who did it with one hand on the Bible in front of somebody? Who peed in a closet? Did you really? I never did that. I'm very embarrassed for you. I don't believe I would have told that myself. That's a big difference between a fist up and sharing in a meeting. You might want to consult your sponsor about the kind of things you talk about in a meeting. I'm very embarrassed for you. I will admit my first wife is still angry about that antique coffee table that used to be in the living room. Okay, I'll give you that. And uh, I thought the two most important and creative inventions of the 20th century, both invented by alcoholics, for your information, one was that little half moon of carpet they put around the commode for you to kneel on. That was invented by one of our guys, you know, his knees were all torn up from that heart. And, and he said, we ought, and, uh, and that soft commode seat you could rest your head on in between heaves there, you know. It's not as cold as a porcelain, but it sure is soft. Remember that? And they think we're not creative. And so I'm in there puking up my guts, quitting forever, right? And then I would pray the, uh, the pre-AA prayer. I'm going to shorten up this part of my story just a little bit, but I'm, we're going to do it together, okay? I'm going to do the first line. You're going to do the second. Remember, i got to set the scene again now. I'm on the prayer rug in the bathroom, right? And I've got a full load on, all right? I'm bringing up my toenails, all right? I'm going to do the first line. You're going to do the second. You ready? God, get me out of this. Which is alcoholic for amen. Is that right? You guys are peeing in the closet? You know that's right. I've had, the, I've had the privilege for over 28 years of taking meetings into correctional facilities. My sponsor came to me one day and said, you're finished in public information forever. You're a promoter and we don't do that. You will now begin to take meetings into a correctional facility. And I said, Jerry, I've never even been arrested. He said, I have a news flash for you, Sparky. The boys in the jail already know how to get arrested. They're not going to need your help with that. <laughs> he was a hard man. We're going to talk about him some more. And then he gave me my favorite misquote. He said, rarely have we seen a person in jail who has thoroughly followed our path. Anyway, I was in deep pod in the county lockup one night, and uh, I was telling that part of my story, and I ad-libbed thing about who peed in the closet, and one guy put his hand up, and uh, I worked him over. Some of you have probably been told they don't laugh much in the jail. You may not know that, but they, they don't laugh much in the jail. They did that night. And when the laughter died down, the guy said, hey, man, no big deal. It wasn't my closet. <laughs> anyway... I, um, I was to fly for five years, and uh, I, I flew a four-engine jet all over the world, and uh, I've been drunk on five continents, and I don't know how many islands, and uh, I spent a year in Southeast Asia. I flew the original side-firing gunship, 
And then I flew an intelligence mission that was classified, still classified above top secret. I found out kind of by mistake not too long ago. And uh, I was so drunk at four o'clock one morning taxiing my plane out that I taxied off into the weeds off the end of the taxiway. And if there'd been a, a rock out there, a ditch, a stump, if there'd been a plane taxiing behind mine, if that had happened in front of the tower instead of a mile away at the far end, I'd still be in the military prison because they, they didn't have alcoholism in the Air Force in 1967. And uh, what a privilege it is for me to just stand here. So, uh, I mean, that's what alcoholism does, isn't it? It, it has us disrespect the things we love, we love the most and tear the hearts out of the people that care the most about us. It, it's, the disease is greedy. Anyway, I, I resigned my commission. I walked away from my dream. And I got a job as a sales rep in the summer of 1984. The president of my company came to me one day and he said, you're going to treatment right now or you're fired. He was a great communicator. <laughs> and uh, June 28, 1984, it was my 41st birthday. Also my sobriety date. And uh, I was through the 28-day treatment program in six weeks flat. And... Uh, <laughs> I've always picked things up quickly, and uh, <laughs> I finally figured out that college gave me that diploma because they figured out I was going to keep coming back. Give him one of these, he'll be gone. He's contagious. Get him out of here. And uh, I, um, I'm going to skip some parts I usually tell in my story because I want to get to the steps, but I, I need to lay the groundwork. And uh, I get back to Nashville, and I, um, I completed um, an alleged fourth step. I'd like to recommend the actual fourth step. Very nice job on that. Uh, it's, this is the AARP version of the big book, if you don't recognize it. And uh, <laughs> I'd like to recommend the actual four-step, been very cleverly concealed on the pages of this book, and Sheldon sure did a fine job on that. Just, all the speakers have been spectacular. And uh, uh, they said go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I went to 87. There was, I can't remember two of them. One night I was about to leave for the meeting. My son fell, hurt himself, and, uh, and I took him to the emergency room. And everybody here knows that was the right thing. And I thought if you'd missed, you just missed. So I can't figure out on my own you can go to two meetings in a day. Because I have a minor case of newcomer thinking that's going to kill me fairly soon if I don't get some help with it. And uh, they said playmates in playgrounds, stay away from them. It was my favorite bar in Nashville on 8th Avenue South. And I had two-year chip in my pocket the next time my car was on 8th Avenue South. I would not turn onto the street. I was that serious about it. And uh, I called down to the treatment center. I did this alleged four-step. And um, I called down to the treatment center and I asked Bernie. Uh, he had said before I left that he would hear my fifth step. And Bernie was a counselor. He was not my counselor. But he said he'd hear it. And the reason I chose him, you look at him and tell him he was ripped out of his mind you know what it looks like, or he's got this dumb grin, his face real relaxed, he kind of shuffles when he, I thought, I'm taking my fist up with this junkie. A month later, will he know what we said? He won't know what we did it. So I thought he was a good choice. And he said, yeah, I drove down, took my fist up, which is where I get, began to get relief. If you're new and you're not into the step work, what the steps do is they give me relief from my alcoholism. They didn't look that way, but that's what they did. And, uh, and that's where I began to get relief. And as an aside, Bernie was not stoned, by the way. He was sober over 20 years. That was serenity. I didn't know what it looked like. Just <laughs> minor case of newcomer thinking, terminal case. And uh, I was so insane, I was looking for a sponsor I could relate to, which today I think is the single dumbest thing I've done in my entire life. It's just for me. I can't figure out you go to two meetings in the day. Who can I relate to? Yeah, somebody else that has no chance at all.
Well, I knew it was a sponsor whose instructions I would take, whose suggestions I would follow. Why would I do it? Because I want to feel like he looks. I want to sound like he sounds. I want my life to work like it looks like his is. And uh, there stood Jerry, and I said, Jerry, would you sponsor me? And he said, well, we'll see. Here's your first assignment. Assignment? I thought a sponsor like a new best friend, going to kind of introduce you around, show you some of the better meetings, maybe loan you some money, fix your wife. <laughs> I got to be careful about what I think, because a lot of it isn't right, and uh, I'm not going to take the time. I did his assignment, and I said, sponsor me, and he said, I'll sponsor you my way. I said, what does that mean exactly? And he said, you're too sick to stay sober on the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. You will need the program also. And I didn't have any idea what he was talking about. And he gave me what he claimed was the single best kept secret in A, and that's the definition of the program. The way we keep it secret was we read it at just almost every meeting. It's on page 59 in the most read, least listened to portion of our literature. Immediately bore step one where it says, here are the steps we took, which is suggested as a program of recovery. No steps, no program. In 29 years, I haven't seen anybody in and out of the program yet. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, I'm saying I haven't seen it. In and out of the fellowship, I see every day. And uh, he said, you will work the 12 steps the way I lay them out at the pace I set, or I'm going to drop you like a bad habit. I needed that, by the way. And uh, I was on He got me. I, I love the definition, the descriptions and everything of alcoholism, but my favorite one, the one that gets me, is here on page 23. It says, once in a while he may tell the truth. <laughs> once in a while, Maybe. That's my history, and, uh, but he scared me, and the truth kind of jumped out of me, and uh, I said, I don't want to do the 12 steps. And he said, that's okay. I said, good. He said, as long as you do them. <laughs> I said, I don't think we're communicating, Jerry. And he said, sure we are. You've been hearing the word willingness? And I said, yeah. He said, here's the definition. Willingness is when you do what your sponsor says, whether you want to or not. And I don't like this at all. So I, I hit him with my best punch. I said, why? <laughs> why do I have to do the 12 steps? And when I ask why, I am never, by the way, looking for an answer. I'm always looking for something I can argue with. And uh, he said, I don't answer why questions for the men I sponsor. And the reason is step one, section B says, you ain't in management, and why is a management question? <laughs> Consequently, all the questions begin with why have the same answer. The answer is, you don't need to know. I hated that when he gave it to me. Today I embrace it. It's one of my cornerstones. Because I always thought it was not knowing that made me crazy. Incorrect. It was needing to know that was making me crazy. When I laid down the need to know, I got peaceful and began to know. Jim Williams, AA speaker out of Texas. Don't go to bed tonight without getting one of his. He tells that better than anybody else I ever heard. But uh, Jerry said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you one why question in a lifetime. Don't ever ask another one. I'm going to tell you something. I don't think I have. He was right about me. And he said, the reason you have to is because alcohol's not your problem. What now? What? He said, alcohol's not your problem. It's your answer. It makes you tall enough, smart enough. You look it up. You can talk to the girls, expert in many subjects. When we say to a guy like you, put it down, we haven't said put down your problem. We said put down the only answer you've ever known. The lubricant of life. We're asking you to lay that down. And when you do, it leaves you without an answer. And you're the kind of guy who needs an answer. You've never been alcoholic. He said, you ever try to quit on your own? I said, well, yeah, I did. I, he said, how many times? I said, well, I don't know. He says, well, how many times? I said, well, I don't know. He said, give me a number. <laughs> About 2,000, Jerry, I'm a puker. <laughs> <laughs> he says, so you're over for 2,000, quitting on your own, doing what you want to do and not doing what you don't want to do. I said, well, yeah. He said, well, that didn't work. 
Must be forgotten. If you get sober, you have to do some things you'd rather not do and not do some things you kind of like to do. I'm not saying why every time he takes a breath. And this is where he changed my life. He said, our program's kind of like going to the dentist. We got to drill before we can fill. We got to dig this poison out of your soul. And that's what some of these steps are about. And, and like the dentist, we got Novocaine. Here we call it home group, fellowship, sponsorship, love. It's not near as hard as the way you've been living. And uh, he said, think of yourself as a garbage can. It's the only easy assignment I guess he ever gave me. And I said, yeah, I got that one. <laughs> and he said, what we're going to do with these steps is we're going to dump you out. We're going to scrub the can and stand it back up. We're going to fish through your life. Most of it's garbage. We're going to throw it away. Portions are good. We'll keep them. For example, you love your children. I said, I love my kids a lot. It's great. We keep that. We finish these steps. You're going to be a big, empty, clean can with just a little good stuff in the bottom. And, and the reason is that one of these days, something very heavy is going to just slam into your heart. He said, your father's going to die. And on that day, you got some good stuff on the bottom, but in that day, if you don't have that big empty clean space to store that pain in while we love you back to spiritual health, you'll escape. And the only escapes you know are killing you and devastating everyone around you. I ran out of why. You know, I, I could quit forever. As you know, forever is somewhere between 20 minutes and about two months. And don't talk to the earthlings about forever. It would terrify you how long they think it is. We know it's rarely more than a quarter. And... Um, <laughs> It's I can quit, but my problem is I can't get unthirsty. You guys, you guys up here say one day at a time, right? Did they tell you the second line of that? Oh, this is a well-kept secret. For those of you who are new, they mean one day at a time in a row. <laughs> with like no breaks ever. <laughs> they didn't fool me with that either. So if I'm going to do that, they got to get me unthirsty, which is the piece I can never find on my own. You know, I can quit forever, but I'm going to get thirsty again. Something's always coming. I own my own business, close the deal, make some money, get thirsty, lose the deal, lose some money, get thirsty, get a new girlfriend. I was married at the time. I'm not proud of that. Uh, it's been a continuing problem for me, but uh, it's the truth. Get a new girlfriend, get, get thirsty, get a new convertible, get a new boat. Oh, man, are the big one hits. Redskins play the Cowboys on Monday night. I'm going to get thirsty. So if I'm going to do this one day at a time in a row, they got to get me unthirsty, the peace I could never find on my own. And I'd like to quote what, I, what is for me the most powerful promise in our book, and it's on page 60. It's the first line. It says, 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. I hear it read a result. It's not what mine says. It says the, that's singular. Promise me one thing. A spiritual awakening is the result of these steps. It's been my experience that spiritually awakened alcoholics do not drink beverage alcohol, and they don't get thirsty ever, no matter what. And uh, uh, I've got a, this is a horror story. I'll tell it quickly. It has a happy ending. Uh, my daughter shot herself in the head and uh, we rushed to Vanderbilt Hospital. Hours later, we found her the next morning. They told us for the first four, four days that she would not live and I didn't say may. And uh, four days is a long time. I'm sitting in my baby's bed and I'm holding her hand. She's conscious now. She's got a breathing tube in and, and I didn't want to think about what she looked like. And uh, she can't talk because of the breathing tube, but she can squeeze your hand once for yes and twice for no. She didn't want to die anymore. And four days is a long time. And I believe if I had not allowed that man to coach me through those 12 steps and had a spiritual awakening as the result, I would have committed first-degree murder that week. And the story would not have the happy ending. My daughter sends you love. Uh, they cured her headaches two summers ago. 
That was 1993 when she shot herself. She would not take pain medication because of our family history. Quite a girl. And she and her husband presented us with a granddaughter seven years ago. And uh, fabulous story, yeah. And she loves what you've done with me too. And I've sponsored two men whose sons were killed. You know, if you've thought about it, you expect to bury your parents and you're even money on your spouse and nobody's prepared to bury their kids. It's the hardest thing you can do. And I've watched two men do it, bury their only sons, two of them, and not only not drink, but not get thirsty. Grieve beyond anything I can imagine. On the floor screaming, nothing I can imagine. Thirsty, didn't happen, didn't happen. I'm a firm believer in this thing. I've seen it, I've seen it work so many times so well. Um, anyway, Jerry insisted I was going to do these 12 steps, and he, he did it by assignment, and he kept me moving. And I believe in that. I needed to take the medicine. Um, and he, so I, I get, you know, I thought when I finished step four, it took a pretty good while. We, we used the big book and the lists and prayed for these people and all that stuff. It took a pretty good time to get to it. So when I finished step four, I figured I was months away from step nine. And I'm wrong about a lot of things. And uh, I was a day away. And uh, so we, we, took, uh, we took a major portion of the people I owed amends to from my, eighth, from my four step list. This is my step eight. And he didn't think it was possible for me to be willing to make amends until I knew what they were. So we talked about them one at a time. What are you going to do? And he... He did not believe that amends was a lecture course. He said, if you talk long enough, you'll let yourself off the hook. You'll make an excuse for yourself and never mess up an amend with an excuse. And uh, he said, if you, take your, if you take the fourth breath while you're making amends, you've already said too much. Dadgum brief. That's how he wanted it. And uh, he said, your mother does not need to hear your fist step. You know, amends to mom. I wasn't as good a son to you as I could have been. I think I tore your heart out a couple of times. I'm living a different life now, and I'd, I'd like to repair the damage I've done. Can you tell me how? Whew. That's plenty. And uh, I had been less than forthright with the Internal Revenue Service. Uh, <laughs> my business partner and I were stealing $25,000 a year. Those are 1983 and $4 from our expense accounts, and that's not an estimate. We took 2,000 a month at the annual trade show. We took a $1,000 cash advance, 25 grand a year. I was stealing. And uh, my sponsor explained to me that the Internal Revenue Service does not want my money. They want their money. <laughs> and I have some of it. And uh, <laughs> that got pretty simple. And. Uh, and it was a simple process. All I had to do was to uh, go to my accountant and, uh, and uh, declare extra $25,000 of income for a couple of years and pay the tax. It was a simple thing. And it's amazing, you know, we talk in step nine about a new freedom. It is amazing what that freedom looks like once you get into it. It's, uh, it's life-changing. I hear people say, turn it over to God. And I think about, I want, I figured out some time ago for me what that means. What am I actually turning over? And the answer is I'm turning over the result. That's what, when I have to turn it over to God. That's when I'm having to turn over. I had an experience. I, I moved out of the home my first wife and I were living in when I was sober six years. And um, 
I, I didn't know what to do. What, what had happened was that uh, I did the steps and I got free and I got my innocence back and she used to control me with my guilt and she was tearing me up one more time and I'm standing there listening to that screaming and I got this moment of clarity and I realized I'm just before hitting her, I've never hit a woman. And uh, I, I'm six feet and 210 and she's five, five and about 100 and I'm just before giving her a straight right to the face and when she goes down, I'm going with her. She is on the way to the hospital, I'm on the way to the jail. It's a bad plan. And I uh, worked it out all by myself. And uh, <laughs> it's a good thing, wasn't anybody else there. And I did about face while she was screaming when I got in the car and drove away, started looking for an apartment. 48 hours later, I moved. And I did not know what to do. I didn't believe in divorce, and I also knew if I lived with her, she was going to keep that up, and one of these days I was going to lose it and hit her. And I just didn't know what to do. And I prayed about it, and don't ask you to believe this came from God. I want you to know that I believe it did. And what I got was a gift. And the gift was three prayers, and I prayed them every day. And the first one was, God, if it's your will for us to be together, put us together. And the second one, if you, God, if it's your will for us to be apart, put us apart. Those are the easy ones. Here's the one that counts. God, if it's your will for me not to know today, leave me not knowing. That's the one. That's the one. If it's your will for me not to know today, leave me not knowing. And I was able to pray that every day and mean it. And it was, my sponsor defined serenity. He said, serenity isn't freedom from the storm. Serenity is peace in the midst of the storm. And the only way I can have that is to give up my need to manage the storm. And the only way I can do that is to know the manager of all storms. And, uh, and so I was at peace and I didn't know. And I didn't know for almost two years. And then one day I knew. And that, that's kind of how those things happen. This, this day at a time thing is, you know, I first saw the slogans, I kind of blew them off. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, one day at a time, yeah, that means don't drink today. Yeah, sure it does. But it also for me means live only in this day. I cannot afford the price of reaching far enough into the past or far enough into the future and bring enough pain and hell and devastation and I don't know and what if they and all that and drag that into today. I can make today so bad I can't stand it. And if I do that, I will either blow my brains out or I will drink again. Because those are the only escapes I know. And so the secret for me is, is to be here. Uh, one of my teachers pointed out some time ago and how it works, it says there's one who has all power, that one is God, may you find him now. And now isn't when I find God, it's where. That my God is the God of right now. And I believe that he will hold one of my hands while my sponsor holds the others while we go into my past to do step work. That's been my experience, he will do that. When I go into the future, I go alone and I'm in bad company alone. And, and the magic for me is to actually use the word today as much as I can. The quite, I'm in a pretty interesting situation right now financially. You understand what that means? <laughs> yeah, okay. And uh, so the question for me isn't, what am I going to do with my finances? The question is, what am I going to do about them today? I have to stick the word today on the tail end of all the garbage that rattles around in my head. My disease is not creative. hits me with the same old garbage. And it tries to take me out of today. And when I stick the word today on the end of that stuff that rattles around in here, it helps me a lot. I, I've given this assignment to the men I sponsor. I've given it to myself twice in the last four years. And that's to write the word today in, with a sharpie, big. One on the mirror where I shave, one on the underwear in the underwear drawer, one on the socks, one on the dashboard of my car. Uh, screensaver on my computer, the word today. And say it as much as I can. The word today, not just in my speech, but also in my thoughts and in my prayers. 
And I got to quit trying to fix the rest of my life. I'm no good at it. I, I'd like to read the first couple of sentences in the chapter figuring it all out, but we don't have that chapter, so I'm, <laughs> I, I'm not going to be able to do that. <laughs> Which leads me to believe that it may not be my job to figure it all out. Because that's what makes me crazy is trying to figure it all out. And, and the, it, all the good questions for me contain the word today. And all the good answers contain the word today. Um, please don't hear anything political in what I'm about to say. There's nothing political in it. This is my experience. As a, as a young man, I paid for an abortion. And what it felt like to me was I'd killed one of my own children. And I used to drink that away, and I used to do whatever was necessary to make it go away. And uh, I was lying in a bed in that treatment center the fourth night that I was there, and, uh, and I couldn't sleep, and I couldn't get that thought off of me. And it was just on me, and I couldn't make it stop. And I reached what I call bottom. I hear the term. I haven't seen the definition anywhere, and this is my experience with bottom. It's not on the physical plane. Um, I was in Brushy Mountain State Prison in Tennessee a while back talking to an inmate who was serving a seven-year sentence for vehicular manslaughter. He was drunk and wrecked his car and killed his own son, and he was planning to drink when he got out. That was not bottom. For me, bottom was in here. It was when I hated myself, I was so repulsed by the things I'd done. The weight of the guilt was so heavy on my soul that I would have paid any price to get out from under it. I, don't, I can't say it. There, there aren't words for what that was. And uh, at that point, my soul screamed for forgiveness and got it. Uh, I had a white light experience. Suddenly, there was this white light, and this, this weight left my body, and there was this marvelous feeling all over me, and I lay in the presence of infinite love. And I knew at that moment that there was a God, that that God had the power to forgive me, and I was forgiven. With my eyes closed, I could see that room better than I could see this one. It was an unbelievable experience. It was, it was just, I don't have words for it. And that's what I was thinking about when I screamed for forgiveness was that I had killed that child. And I get to step eight, and I owe amends to an unborn child. I didn't think it could be done. I have been blessed to be in the hands of big book people since my earliest days. This is page 83. Some people cannot be seen. We send them an honest letter. And I was shown how to write that letter. And uh, it was a fascinating process, and this is my experience. Uh, in step four, there's some writing, but I don't know that the writing has a lot of effect. I think the observations or considerations the book calls for and the prayers are life-changing. I know that the writing has a lot of effect. My experience with this letter was that the writing didn't have a lot of effect, but the tears were cleansing. And I was instructed to, to write until I could cry. And as soon as the tears began to flow, I was to lay my pen down. And I had, I had a spiritual advisor, it was not my sponsor, I had a spiritual advisor who was taking me through this who would prayerfully hold the space while I did it. And as soon as I could cry, I was to lay the pen down and cry as long as I could. I had been taught to cry by a member of my home group. Uh, I was a very masculine man. I'm sober a year and I'm watching this guy cry in almost every meeting and I finally said, I mean, very masculine. He's a drummer and you would know the name of the band if I said it. And I said to him one day, Tony, tell me about the tears. And he said, somebody says something beautiful in the meeting, it touches my heart and I weep and it feels so good. And I said, I can't cry. He said, I'll teach you. Took me a year to get the first tear out, and I've learned to cry, and I wouldn't take anything for it. Uh, I, I, part, of, uh, part of my journey here is I'm journeying into becoming who I've always really been, to carve away this garbage that's been in me, to dig, as, as Jerry said, to dig the poison out of my soul so I can find out who I've always really been, because I got no idea. 
because I've had up so many masks for so long, I don't have any idea who I am. And uh, so it was necessary for me to learn to cry. Uh, I will offer it now to teach you to cry. I'm not kidding. I typed it up. I got them right here. I must warn you, gentlemen, if you cry at appropriate times and places, you'll attract a lot of women. I warned you right up front, don't call me about that, okay? Don't call me about it, because they see right through that John Rain act, don't you, ladies? Yeah, they've been seeing through that all the time, man. And they see a guy that's in touch with his emotions that lights them up like pinball machines, and we're going to talk about something else now. And uh, but anyway, my instructions in this letter were to write until I could cry, and cry as long as I could, and then write again, and as soon as I couldn't, as, as, as soon as I cried again, to lay the pen down. So it was necessary for me to learn to cry before this process could work for me. I've had the privilege of working with an awful lot of people on this. I've been public with this for 20 years in these microphones, I guess. I got a call a few years ago from a fella who said he sponsored two guys who needed to do letters. And he did not have the experience, and I was going to be at a conference near them, and when I carve out some time, and you bet. And we sat down, and I sat down with these guys, and he, the sponsor and I prayerfully held the space while these guys wrote their letters. And one guy cried through the process. The other one never cried a tear. The one that cried got free that day. The other one got a sinus infection. And um, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. And I, I gave them this how to cry thing. They took it back with me, called me three months later, said the guy learned to cry. We did it again. He got free. And that was what convinced me that it is in that fact on that particular type of amend. And, and that's, I, I've been talking about an unborn child. As a grandparent, anybody that's gone to the other side, we can get free. Don't doubt the power here. We have, we have tapped a power vastly beyond anything I can even imagine. And uh, to be stronger than that, I got free. And uh, I wrote what I have, my experience on this letter is on the other side of this crying thing. And I'm not kidding, they're right there. If you want one, you're welcome to it. Um, I, made, uh, I made amends to my children. Um, my children uh, are both, I, I call them alleged adults. And... Uh, <laughs> I sat down with them separately and uh, told them briefly what I thought I was derelict in and, and asked how I could make it right. And we finished. And I went from there for a pretty good period of time making what I call living amends. Uh, I don't want to raid on anybody's parade and if that's what you're doing, it's good with me. Uh, one of my great teachers believed in that. I don't. I believe today the fact that I'm trying to be the best dad for them that I can isn't ninth step work, it's twelfth. It's the principles in all my affairs. Sober men who are walking the spiritual path, who have children, try to be good fathers. And if I think it's ninth step work, I've not accepted their forgiveness or God's of my own, and I have work left to do. Now, I, I'm not trying to put that on anybody. That's my experience with it. it it's a scary thing, and uh, I'm not making a living amends. I, I don't think there's such a thing. And, one of the fantastic gifts that I have received, I'll never be able to thank you all enough for, for allowing me to do this. I, over the course of the last couple of days, I thought, you know, God has sent me up here to talk about steps eight and nine. I want to say, did you talk to your sponsor about that? I mean, really, I'm not sure. But one of the things that I have received is a gift. And the gift is that I thought I had an amend I couldn't make. And uh, one of my teachers says, a way will be shown. When you commit yourself to making these amends, the universe will begin to rearrange itself to make that possible. And I believed it for everybody but me. And uh, these microphones are, are addictive. 
They can be. I've, I've heard somebody has talked about that this weekend, and that happened to me. And uh, this is how I see it. Some other people might see it, see it differently. And um, I became in love with this microphone, and I did way too much of it. And uh, it's okay if you think I'm great. It's when I think I'm great that there's a problem. As long as I believe, I can say, well, give God the glory. But if that's not happening in here, I'm in a lot of trouble. And uh, I got in a lot of trouble, and I was too much in love with my AA microphone to tell anyone, even my sponsor, my closest friends, that I was getting in trouble, and I started down a bad path, and I violated my marriage vows, and I'm recently divorced because of that, and rightly so. And uh, I thought, there's just not any way I'm going to be able to make amends for that. And I've been praying about it just since I've started praying about this talk, which has started about two weeks ago, because I knew I was going to be standing here in front of a couple of my heroes, a couple of my great teachers. And... Uh, try to get me out of the way and to make me an open channel. And uh, I realized that, uh, yeah, I may not be able to make amends, but I know somebody that knows how. And some clarity's coming to me on some other things. I have received a tremendous gift. I, uh, uh, Glenn and I were talking. I believe it's a spiritual truth that you cannot go somewhere to give and not receive. I don't believe it's possible. I believe it's also not possible to receive without giving. And I got here as a taker. I've been taker all my life. And uh, I thought I was going to have to transition from taker to giver. And I don't think that's possible. Because as a taker, I don't have anything. What I had to do was transition from taker to receiver. The difference is that a receiver says things like, thank you. And I don't understand. Would you explain that to me again? I have a question. I really appreciate it. And having done that for a while, I can then be a giver. But I can't go from taker to giver. And then when I finally got those three pieces, as, as I see them today, I may disagree with this in a month. This is how I see it now. When I, when I got those pieces, I thought it's being the giver that's the important piece. That's the one I got to really stay with. And it's not. It's being the receiver that's the important one. I can give from behind my shields. I got to lay them down to be a receiver. And, and if I don't let the people who deserve to know when I need to receive, if I don't let them know, I block their chance to get close to God by giving. It's a very selfish act. These are things that were so foreign to me when I got here. These are concepts I didn't have a guess on. And well, go back to, I believe Earth is a school. I'm pretty sure I flunked out of somewhere else. Um, that's how I got here, or I was thrown out as a behavior problem. And, um, and I think my first lesson, the first one that counted was, what's it look like when Scott runs wide open after his own will? What's that look like? Take a real good look. With that piece in place, and with the idea that maybe, just maybe, God's will is a good deal. See, I got here terrified of God's will. Maybe I'm from the South. Let me say it for you another way. God's will. <laughs> Why'd Grandma die? It was God's will. Well, it killed her. And, and, and they say, if you're just thinking it, if you're even thinking it, you're going to hell. I ain't just been thinking it. So I got here terrified there might be a God. And uh, so I had a whole lot of stuff to try to unlearn. And so that I could do what for me is step three, in essence, what I'm doing at step three is I'm signing the blank sheet at the bottom that represents the rest of my life. I'm saying, I'd like to invite you to fill this in. I got no questions, not gonna have any complaints. I can't do that until I'm sick to death of my own will. And until I begin to believe there's a chance that God's will is a good deal. 
I have to have those two pieces in place to move on. And I have to have a loving God, I think, to be able to move into step nine. How in the world am I going to be able to face these people if I don't have a God that's strong enough? And uh, as Joe said it so beautifully, if you're going to have a real God, you've got to treat him like he's real. If you want him to be real in your life, you've got to treat him like he's real. And uh, I, I had an experience. I have to be really careful. I don't want anyone to be able to figure out who this guy is. Um, many years ago, I had a very close friend who was a special forces guy. I'm a Vietnam guy. This guy was on the ground in Laos and took the hill tribesmen from, M6, from crossbows to M16s and led them in combat for a couple years. He has no idea how many times he's killed with his hands. And he did something that he shouldn't have done, and I knew about it. And drunk one night, I said something about it, and it got back to him. And I lied my way out of it. And then I get sober, and I owe this guy an amend. And he, he lives in another state, pretty good ways from Tennessee, and he comes into town for a trade show. And I realize what I got to do, and I ask God to come with me. Because I'm going to walk into this man's hotel room. He has no idea. I'm going to walk into this man's hotel room, and if this man makes the choice to kill me, I will die in that hotel room in the next few minutes. And there's nothing I can do that will stop it, because that's who he is. And uh, I asked God to go with me. You know, they tell me if I want to strengthen a muscle, I should use it. I claim I want to strengthen my faith. Welcome to step nine. Here's a chance to do it. And I went into that hotel room and I said, I, I, I got to tell you what happened. And I told him. A year later, my wife and I were guests in his home. You know, it's amazing how some people can receive us. When we take God with us, stuff just falls down in front of us and a way will be shown. And, and I think I'm in the process of having a way being shown to me right now. Um, you know, our entire fellowship is based on one man's eighth step. We are here, I, I, I have the privilege of talking in jails and treatment centers pretty often. I like to tell them, I can tell you exactly what you gotta do to get sober and stay the way. I can tell you exactly what it is. It's whatever it is you ain't willing to do. That's what you're gonna have to do. And uh, Dr. Bob was not willing to tell people he was an alcoholic and make amends. And he drank again. And then he got up on the morning, I'm, I believe, June the 10th, and had a couple of beers to steady his hand so that he could go do surgery. And then he disappeared, and they thought he was drinking. And what had happened was he had the willingness to do that last thing. And for him, that last thing was step eight, was the willingness and then to go ahead and make those amends. And, and I believe we're all here because of that. Without his eighth step, we're not here. What a powerful, powerful thing. Um, I want to share a couple of more experiences with you. I have permission to tell any story I tell that includes somebody else. And um, I, I sponsor a fellow who got a phone call from the IRS one day. And they said, uh, it was a Friday. They said, we'd like you to be in our office next Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock, and if that's a problem with your schedule, we'd like to suggest you change your schedule. And uh, so it was easy for him to get there. All he did was climb over the seat because he was living in the back seat of a borrowed car. And they said he owed him $167,000. And uh, I was sponsoring this guy, and he said, what should I do? And I said, treat God like he's real. He said, the next time you go into that office, you get up in the morning, you invite God to go with you. You hold the door for him, get out to the car, open the passenger door. If there's stuff in the seat, move it. 
invite him in, close the door. He said he and God walked into that guy's office and there were two chairs on his side of the desk and he knew he was going to win. And six months later, they wrote him a check for 1200 <laughs> Powerful, powerful stuff. I, uh, I tell the, uh, the new guy, oh, I'm so excited. Uh, one of my rookies just finished his ninth step and he didn't have to tell me. I could hear it in his voice. I could hear it in his voice. And what I like to do is apply one day at a time to step nine. We finished up to that point. We've reviewed his eight-step list. We know what the amends are going to look like. Which one are you going to do first? I don't care which one he does. Which one are you going to do first? Yeah, that's a good choice. When can you call him schedule an appointment? Why can't you call him right now? Good. Good. Make it as soon as you can. Great. Tomorrow afternoon at 2, I'll be looking for your call at 2.15. 2.15 tomorrow afternoon. How'd it go? Oh, they didn't remember who you were? Well, don't worry about it. Who's next on the list? Yeah, that's a good choice. When can you call him? Why can't you call him now? <laughs> Book it tomorrow. See, he's saying I can't make 130 amends, and I'm saying he can't either. He can make one today, right? We're only four months from finishing this. So one day at a time applied to that. The other thing I do at that point is I start them sponsoring. I start them sponsoring if they're not already doing it by the time they get to step nine. He's got something to give. And the other thing is it makes my job so much easier. And by the time he gets to step nine, a lot of his motivation is gone. In the first place, he's got a key to the front door. He walks in the house, they don't scatter. He throws the switch, the lights come on. He answers the phone when it rings. He's sleeping in the big bed. My problem is to keep him motivated and moving. And when he's got a rookie coming up through the steps. He doesn't want the rookie to get to eight before he finishes nine. It really helps me keep them moving. So it's a, it's just, they teach that at secret sponsor school. I don't know whether you guys have one of those here or not. Um, and I, I also think it's really important. I tell them too, you owe money, you owe somebody 500 bucks, you need to show up with a hundred. And if you're dead solid certain that you can give him a hundred a month from now on, promise him 50. Let's under promise and over deliver. Whole new concept for us. Under promise, over deliver. Um, I'm doing the best I can with this, and if somebody can you want to catch me alone and have a better idea, I would dearly love to hear it. I'm gonna I'm doing this the best I can. So how how does a fella make amends to a lady whose charms he's availed himself of lightly without her making her feel cheap? And I think the answer that I have so far is number one, he has a girl from the home group call her. We don't want her husband or boyfriend wanting to know who that guy was on the phone and say, this guy, and would you be willing? And if so, how? Will you meet with him? Is it email? How is it? Let's do it her way. And then, again, it's no more than four breaths. I wasn't as good a friend to you as I could have been, and I think I've done some damage. I'd like to repair it. Can you tell me how? That's plenty. If somebody has something better than that, I would really dearly love to hear it because it's something we deal with all the time. And I think the idea of not doing more harm to them is a critically important piece of this whole thing. Um, it's also important, too, that this person that you're going to make amends to is not final authority in what the amend is. We need to hear what they think it is. But if you'd gone to Big Ken Sweeney the day before he got sober to make amends, he would have bashed you for the rest of your life. Ken hated everybody, and he wished there was more of them. I'd never seen anyone in love with hate before. And, and so we need to hear what they think the amend might be. But, but the sponsor and the sponsee prayerfully are final authority on what it really needs to be. 
I think it's important. Not asking you to turn your will and life over to somebody who may be in love with hating you. That, that's just my take on it. If your sponsor's got you something, doing something different, I think your sponsor's right and I'm wrong in your case. And I mean that with all my heart. I believe God blesses sponsorship. Um, I had an interesting thing a number of years ago. Uh, a guy I've known in business for many, many years said to me, I've seen what the 12 steps have done in your life and I'm not an alcoholic. And he's not. I've watched him. He just doesn't have the gift. And... Uh, <laughs> He doesn't. He just wastes every drop he drinks. And um, <laughs> he said, can I do those 12 steps? And I said, sure you can. You, you qualify as Al-Anon by having me as a friend. If you go to two Al-Anon meetings a week and agree not to drink one drop of booze or smoke any dope of any kind while we do this, because I want you to be present, I will take you through these 12 steps. And uh, what a fabulous experience it was for both of us. And... Um, a fascinating thing, we get to step nine and he finds a lady, like I just described, and discovers a daughter and two grandchildren and they are today a family. Yeah. Boy, you don't ever know when God's going to plant one of these beauties right in the middle of you. You just don't ever know when he's just going <sighs> to... The... Uh... <laughs> I love the, uh, the ninth step promises. There was a misread at one of the groups in Nashville a while back. There was a, somebody handed the ninth step. They, we, we read them as part of the opening in a lot of meetings. And somebody handed them to a girl who's still in treatment. And she read, fear of people and of economic insecurity will level us. <laughs> I think that might be right. <laughs> I, I, I would tell another story or two and I'll let you go. Um, and it's one of those, it's not possible to make the amends thing. I have the privilege of sponsoring a guy who lives in the U Ukraine. And uh, I'm sober longer than they've had AA in his country. You know, I've got all kinds of spiritual advisors. One of mine is sitting here. Two of them, three. And, and they don't have a bunch of those around. And so I get a lot of phone calls from him about, I sponsor a guy, sponsor a guy, sponsor a guy, buy that, fill in the blank, how did you make the amend? And my response is always the same. I think the sponsor and sponsee need to sit prayerfully on multiple occasions and see what they get. And if they don't get an answer of some kind, call me. I don't get many calls back on that. And I had one of those myself a number of years ago. This beautiful guy that I was sponsoring had, uh, he was 50, 55 years old. And in like kindergarten or first grade, he grabbed another kid's hat on the playground. They were playing keep away. When nobody's looking, he threw it up in a tree. We got some oak trees in Tennessee that don't lose all their leaves. And this hat hid in the tree. Nobody knew where it was. Nobody could see it. And they kept saying, where's the hat and teachers and all that. And, and this kid was not from a, he was from a very poor family and went that winter without a hat. And here we are 30 years later. And this guy owes amends. He doesn't even know that kid's first name, much, as, much less his last name. The school is no longer there. Literally, no way to make amends. And he and I sat prayerfully. And this is what we got. Um, we got a professional football team in Nashville. And he went down to their store. And every kid at the orphanage today has a Tennessee Titans stocking cap. And my sponsee is free. And I was doubting the power until you gave me the honor of doing this. I swear, I don't think I have but one type of problem anymore. And my problem is my God's not big enough. Sometimes my God, and it's not his fault, it's mine. Uh, a guy in my home group years ago said, God forgives me for everything I ever did, and he loved me while I was doing it. 
We close the meetings with a prayer, and they're going to allow me to, I'm, I'm, we're going to close tonight with a, something we do at our men's retreats, a little bit different from what y'all do. And um, there's a phrase in there, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive. I'm going to talk about step nine. I can't afford the price of, stand, of my soul staying naked before my creator, guilty of something that left somebody else hating me, that blocked them from the sunlight of the spirit. Unless I can point at some other place in my life and say, this is where I tried to make that amend. This is where I asked you to help me find them. This is where I tried to fix that. I cannot afford the price. This is just slightly more important than life or death. Just slightly more important than life or death. And the ninth step promises, I said, yeah, I'm too far gone. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It doesn't say God will suddenly begin to do for us. It says my realization will be sudden. And, and I misread for a long time this one on page 77. Our real purpose to fit ourselves to be a maximum service to God and the people about us. I thought my job was to be a maximum service. It's not. It's to fit myself. My work is here. My work is on me. To be the best tool I can be laying as close to the master's hand as I can so that I can be useful. I think that's what my assignment is. Um, Don was my great teacher too. And I had the privilege of spending his last Thanksgiving with him. And everybody in the room knew that's what it was. And he was the man, for those who did not know him, who could answer any question. And, and every I took him questions nobody could answer and he had it every time. And every time you were around him, your spirit got fed. And um, I was finally able to ask him the question that, is, that I've been afraid of. And the question was, Don, what are guys like Scott gonna do when guys like Don are all gone? And this beautiful, humble guy leaned across this little table. He cupped his hands like this. And he said, I have been bringing you hands full of water. Go to the river. That was the answer. Metaphorically, what he said was that he'd gained access to a power and a wisdom vastly beyond his own. That he believed was available to me and I believe was available to everybody here. And I'd like to close my talk with what I believe are the directions for getting to that river. With what's the most important thing I've said tonight. I think it's the most important thing ever been said in an AA meeting. Here are the steps we took, which are suggested as they program a recovery. I love you with all my heart. I really do. Thank you.